You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, uh, that we might hold fast to our confession in the promises that you've given us through Jesus Christ, even now. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, um, at least this mic's working. Is this one working now? This one? Okay. I can turn this off? Well, I'll use this uh, during announcements. Mental note, Kent, okay? Because I'm going to bring some folks up later, so we'll keep this up here. Uh, that's neither here nor there. Well, last time, I apologize, I ended the sermon with a coughing fit, um, so it ended abruptly, and I didn't get to say everything I wanted to say. Um, I'm hoping today goes better. I've changed my diet this week with the hopes that this sermon would go better, but you never know. Um, I wanted to finish by commenting on our society as it relates to the message of Hebrews and started to touch on that with a quote that I brought in uh, from the man named Nabil Qureshi. Um, the thing is that we, we are similarly led astray in our culture as the, the folks in uh, Hebrews were led astray by their culture. But for us, it might have a different character, although the, the essence of the message of Hebrews applies for us, uh, therefore. Uh, I was just reading, or I'm reading uh, the um, memoirs of C.S. Lewis about his conversion to faith, C.S. Lewis the great English apologist who wrote the Narnia series. And there was this amazing quote in there that I was reading last night in bed that goes like this. I, so he's a man who converted in, when he was about 30 years old, remember. He says, I often find myself at cross purposes with the modern world. I have been a converted pagan living among apostate Puritans. Let me just read that again. This is, I think, really important for us to understand because it's true for us in the South, in the Bible Belt. He said, and this was in England, you know, saturated by the Church of England, so everybody th- thought that they were Christian, even though uh, that might not always be the case. He said, I often find myself at cross purposes with the modern world. I've been a converted pagan living among apostate Puritans. I thought that was a great quote. Maybe you don't find it funny, but I laughed out loud in bed when I read it because I resonate with so much of that as someone who came to faith in San Francisco of all places and now finds himself as a minister of the gospel in the Bible Belt. Um, But to to be truly faithful is to be at many cross-purposes with our modern world. Um, So how then might we be apostate Puritans? I'll come back to that at the end of the sermon. Let me just talk to you about our passage today uh, in Hebrews uh, chapter 3. The historical context, remember, of Hebrews is that these are Jewish converts to the Christian faith who are under pressure. And because they're under pressure from their surrounding society, they're beginning to fall away from an exclusive uh, faith in Jesus Christ. And this is mainly through a sort of Jewish... uh, Christian hybrid religion. If you've read Galatians, 
Um, there might be something quite similar going on here to what's at stake in Galatians. Maybe not, but we see there in that letter too, there's a similar thing going on where the, the Jewish religion and Christian religion are being unhelpfully sort of combined in this hybrid way and sort of falling back to their old ways of um, a sort of ritualistic um, faith that Jesus Christ in the end isn't the the ultimate uh, hope that we have, that we might need to find hope in other places too. And so we see the in chapter 10, actually, which we'll get to later, of course, is the most helpful place for understanding what's going on for the Hebrews. In chapter 10, verses 32 through 36, the author of Hebrews says to them, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, so basically like C.S. Lewis, after you came to faith in Jesus, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He's talking about that which is in heaven. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So we see here that they have been... Uh, all along, even from the beginning, suffering persecution, even to the point of having their property stolen, and at at least at one point, uh, accepting this as their fate. And so in chapter 3, the author of Hebrews, uh, in the beginning of chapter 3, had a very encouraging word that I talked about last time in the first part, and he now turns at the end of chapter 3 to a stern warning in the second part of chapter 3. And so last time, he reminded them of their identity, that they're the household of God and have a a ministry of proclamation to the world and uh, chiefly to each other, actually. Um, This time, he warns them of the risk of of falling away uh, through an exposition of Psalm 95, which we just uh, read. Thanks, Zach, for throwing that in there for us to have uh, the context. We, we read Psalm 95, and then you see it in our reading here today. And uh, he particularly uses the strange and abrupt ending of Psalm 95. If you've ever, ever read Psalm 95 all the way through, it has this strange uh, twist starting at about verse 7, uh, where it's all about praise, singing God's praises, and then this very stern uh, warning at the very end, which is a retelling of the story of Exodus chapter 17. And you might recall if you were here in the fall that we preached through Exodus, and we actually uh, had this passage. That story is just several days, remember, after God's final uh, plague on Pharaoh in Egypt, just several days after the Passover, just after the exodus from Egypt through the Red Sea and all that came with that, after God leading them and fighting for Israel through uh, pillars of cloud and fire, and after provision of uh, bitter water made sweet and even bread falling from heaven so they might have something to eat. All that has just happened, I mean, days ago. And so shortly after all these visible signs demonstrating God's uh, love and provision for them, as well as his promise to them of a homeland, homeland to come, this is what happens in Exodus 17. I'm just going to read the, the pertinent bits again for you so we have the full story of what's happening uh, in this passage in Hebrews 3, what's happening in Psalm 95, all goes back to Exodus 17. 
All the congregation of the people of Israel moves on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And so after all those things that happened, once again, God provides for them what they need, the water, so that they might survive and not die of dehydration in the wilderness. Which is why Psalm 95 uh, has uh, this warning to its original audience. Uh, Psalm 95 says this, starting at verse 7, Today, if you hear his voice, which we just read, remember, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are the people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest." And so likewise, the author of Hebrews is telling, retelling this story as a warning to his audience now. Israel's biggest problem at Meribah and Massah was rebellion in the form of hardness of heart, I mean, just like Pharaoh a few days before, and unbelief, in spite of the evidence that God uh, provided them that he was for them, that he loved them and would provide for them over and over and over again. I mean, that just had water made, uh, sour water made sweet so they could drink it. They just had ha- bread supernaturally come out of heaven. And once again, they're saying, Where are we? we're going to die here of thirst. And so God again provides. So the author of Hebrews is warning um, them as God's current people, as God's current household of faith. He's now speaking to them saying, do not fall into unbelief like Israel in the wilderness. They too have a promised land ahead. Just as God by Moses led Israel through the Red Sea and the Exodus after uh, the Passover, um, heading to a promised land, Jesus also led the people of God through the exodus of his death and resurrection, delivering them from enslavement to sin and death and to an eternal promise. In the same way, do you see the parallel? And so too the Hebrews are in their own sort of wilderness period in this life. This life after Christ's death, resurrection and ascension, yet before his return and final judgment, 
and restoration of all things. And so here's the, the main point of this passage. Here's the main point as I can discern it. I'm just looking at the latter part of chapter 3. I don't know why the rest of chapter, the beginning of chapter 4 is in there. That's my mistake. Sorry, I overlooked that. I thought I was only preaching on the end of chapter 3 today. This is the main point of that bit. The Hebrews, as the, the people of God, uh, now in their pilgrimage in the wilderness of this life, need to hold fast to their original confidence in Jesus Christ and not go astray by rebellion, hardness of heart, and unbelief. Uh, let me just read that again. This is what I wrote down as the main point I see in this bit of chapter 3. The Hebrews, as, as, as God's people now, in their pilgrimage in the wilderness of this life, need to hold fast to their original confidence in Jesus Christ and not go astray by rebellion, hardness of heart, and unbelief. Rather, they're exhorted to enter into the eternal rest that God has promised them. And if that's the main point, here's a subpoint, a practical subpoint that he has uh, in this passage, um, that they have a great, great need for mutual encouragement in order to persevere. They have a great need to mutually encourage each other. And this comes out in verses 12, 13, and 14, right there in the middle. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So there's a, a communal nature here um, to the warning and to the need to exhort, or you could say encourage, each other. This is not just a, an individual message, which is difficult, I think, for us to understand. You know, in the 21st century, United States, um, um, the West. I remember when I was in New England, I experienced this in particular, that people would often say something like, um, you know, that, that, that's, uh, that, that's my belief, that they have sort of private, privatized kind of religion, that, you know, I don't want to offend anybody, and I don't want to be offended by what anybody says. Even in the church, you know, you would hear this sort of thing. Well, we do that too, that we often think on individualistic terms. But remember, like I said last week, that, that he's talking to the household, uh, the house, the home of God, the, the collective group of people there who are to dwell with God, which is the reason why I cannot and you cannot preach the gospel to yourself. I, can't, I fail at preaching the gospel to myself. Uh, I might try, but I can't do it very well, at least enduringly. Um, we need each other to speak the gospel to each other because of the hardness of our hearts. That the, 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 vo the voice in my head is weaker than the voice that comes on your lips of the good news of Jesus Christ. And the same is, is true for you. And that's why this sort of sub-point of the need to exhort one each other, each other every day, every day, he says, not just Sunday, you know, for 20 minutes, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Well, I began uh, this sermon series on Hebrews um, talking about how God speaks, that that um, was the message of the first few verses of this entire letter, 
that God isn't merely, that our God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is not some mere deity um, who has nothing to do with us, who got, who got it all created and sort of kicking back, that he's a God who has been involved with our lives and speaks to us and continues to. Um, and we see that echoed today in verse 7 at the beginning of this passage that says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and what does he say? He says, do not harden your hearts. That is, do not rebel against God. This is the same message that God has been speaking to his people for generations. And remember in that first uh, sermon several weeks ago on Hebrews chapter 1 that I said that people will often talk about how there's a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament, that that's a, it's been a common heresy from the beginning. And people, I still hear people say that. But here in this passage, we see that God has been speaking the same message from the beginning all the way till today. This is the same message that God uh, spoke to those who originally rebelled in the wilderness on the lips of Moses to them. And God spoke the same message to those who originally read Exodus chapter 17. And God spoke the same message to those who originally heard Psalm 95. And God spoke the same message to the original readers of the epistle to the Hebrews. And God now speaks the same message to those of us who read Hebrews in all of those passages today. Well, what about today? This is where I want to end up. Remember where I started talking about C.S. Lewis and how um, we're at risk of being apostate Puritans. Well, what about today? If the message is the same, the message to hold fast to the object of our confidence, our hope, and our boasting, um, even though the message is the same, something important has changed, though. Something very important, but not the ultimate thing, has changed. For Israel, they were distracted by fear of dehydration and the need of water, which is a very um, scary thing. By the way, if you've ever been uh, dehydrated and in desperate need of water, you can understand the, the, the sheer desperation to be in that situation. But that was their distraction and forgetting that God had continued to provide and fend for them. For the Hebrews, they were distracted by the fear of uh, persecution in whatever form that was, either just by mocking or by uh, being beaten and thrown in prison or having their things stolen, or maybe even the fear of death. For us modern Christians here in the West, we're distracted by our own contemporary fears. As C.S. Lewis uh, poetically described it, we're at risk of being apostate Puritans. That is paying lip service to the gospel, but basically living our lives as if it didn't matter for us. What might this uh, look like? I'm going to read to you again something. Um, and I'm reading things to you like this. I know it's a little bit long. This will take me about two minutes to get through, and it'll feel like an eternity. Because I want to paint for you the picture of what our life is like. As, as Christians, that this resonates with me, and I hope it resonates with you at some level. Allow this story, wherever you are on the ideological spectrum, um, and don't be um, 
just sort of take anything ideological here with a grain of salt, okay? Allow this to be a sort of um, a substitute for you and your situation as a Christian. This is from a book, by the way, called Total Truth by a woman named Nancy Percy. If you're going to the lake and need a light reading, you know, pick this up. I got, they have it at the library. I'll return it so you can go get it. She says, uh, she's telling a story here. A fashionably dressed, and this is a true story, a fashionably dressed college student stepped into the counselor's office, tossing her head in an attempt at bravado. Sarah recognized the type. The Planned Parenthood clinic where she worked often attracted students from the elite university nearby, and most were wealthy, privileged, and self-confident. Please sit down. I have your test result, and you are pregnant. The young woman nodded and grimaced. I kind of thought so. Have you thought about what you want to do, Sarah asked. The answer was quick and sure. I want an abortion. Let's go over your options first, Sarah said. It's important for you to think through all the possibilities before you leave today. Sometimes the young women sitting in her office would grow impatient, even hostile. They had already convinced themselves that there were no viable options. After years of experience in her profession, however, Sarah knew that women who have abortions are often haunted afterward. She, uh, she hoped to help the students consider the impact an abortion might have in years to come so they would make an informed decision. If they balked, she fell back on protocol. This is my job. I have to do it. Why did Sarah care? Because she was a practicing Christian, as she explained to me many years later, and she thought that's what being a believer meant, showing compassion to women who were considering abortion. Nor was she alone. The Planned Parenthood clinic where she worked was located in the Bible Belt, and virtually all the women on staff were regular churchgoers. During breaks, they would discuss things like their Bible study groups or their children's Sunday school programs. So how did she end up working at Planned Parenthood and referring women for abortion? Something happened to Sarah when she went off to college. There she was, immersed in the liberal relativism taught on most campuses today. In courses on sociology, anthropology, and philosophy, it was simply assumed that truth is culturally relative, that ideas and beliefs emerge historically by cultural forces and are not true or false in any final sense. In Christianity, it was treated as irrelevant to the world of scholarship. And this is a quote from Sarah. In a class on moral philosophy, the professor presented every possible theory from existentialism to utilitarianism, but never said a word about Christian moral theory, even though it's been the dominant religion all through Western history, Sarah recalled. It was as though Christianity were so irrational, it didn't even merit being listed alongside the other theories. Well, that's what it might feel like uh, for us today. And um, here's, uh, here's what I want to say. You know, look, don't think the uh, conservative wing of the church is immune to this either. Um, what about the man on a crusade against uh, sexual immorality, yet he's the biggest parking lot gossip in the world? Or what about the woman who's a teetotaler when it comes to alcohol, and yet she's making her adult children's lives miserable through passive aggression and manipulation? How might you be at cross-purposes, not with the world, but with the gospel? 
Again, like I said last week, being God's household has implications. And please don't mishear me on this. I'm by no means talking about earning our salvation. We're past that. We're already the people of God. But like Israel, that means we're guaranteed trouble. It's just going to come our way, which can lead us to rebellion like it did at Massah and Meribah. Like them, like the Hebrews, we too are in the wilderness of this life. But you know who else was in a wilderness amidst great suffering? Tempted to rebellion just like you? Jesus. And this is the good news, that Jesus Christ lived his wilderness sojourn perfectly for us. We live this wilderness life on the donated capital of his entire life, including his faithfulness in the wilderness. And so this is my appeal to you, um, to live life knowing that Christ earned your salvation by his grace. And we now find ourselves in the wilderness, and yet we're promised a perfect country up ahead. So we must remind each other this news of God's grace for us. This is part of the reason we gather as Christians. We continually need to encourage each other, not just on Sunday and not just in sermons, that we need to hear the word of the gospel every day from all of our fellow believers. And this is the reason we must talk to each other about the promises of God over and over and over again and it's the reason why we come back here Sunday by Sunday to basically, have you, have you not been paying attention? We preach the same dang message every Sunday. This, the, the text is different, but basically the punchline's the same. But we desperately need to hear it over and over and over again. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.